We're coming to you live from uh, the Cathedral of Smoke. I'm sitting here with Wayne Miller. Uh, how's it going? It's a wonderful day in the neighborhood. Uh, we talked about doing this just to get an update. I mean, you know people all over the world who are cooking barbecue, uh, and it's it's just a this is the perfect place to kind of find out the vibe, what's going on. I saw your friend Billy Durney, he was in town. Um, oh, yeah. During the Hot Luck Fest and a few other guys. Um, have you uh, have you had much travels in the recent past? or There's a little traveling coming up for um, the next few months. I'm definitely going to Montana in a couple of weeks. I'll be... I'll be in Hawaii, of all places, at the 1st of July. That sounds beautiful. Um, well, as long as I don't get smothered by a volcano. <laughs> I think you'll be safe. Yeah. Uh, at least I'm an, an island to the east, or to the west, so I should be okay. Uh, Chicago is coming up. Are these uh, all different events? Or yeah, they're all different events. All barbecue-based, I'm guessing? Yes, they're all barbecue-based. Um, it's always an opportunity and I think a privilege just to be invited to go do different events at different, um, whether they're private, public, semi-private. Preach the gospel, man. I mean, give me, <laughs> give me a chance to, to sort of get out and do what I do best. And I think that's, you know, talk about the things that I love, such uh, as this. Spreading the word. Yeah. One, one, you know, spread the gospel one bite at a time. And the, the last time we were here, we were talking about that and just uh, the popularity of brisket and some of these cuts. Are you, are you still seeing that popularity rise of people buying briskets all over the world? Brisket consumption is still on the increase because it's still seen as the Texas barbecue flag <clears throat> or the official flag of barbecue, Texas-style barbecue. That's being transported or imported to, all, to really the four corners of the globe. Europe is Europe and Asia are, are the two latest that I think are really embracing Texas style barbecue, beef barbecue, beef centric, beef ribs are, are are generally a part of that mix. But they're tough cuts to find in Europe. Just fatty meat is tough to find in Europe and and Asia, unless you're going to go all the way. Unless you're going wagyu, you know. You're not going to find much between that and a very lean Australian cow. So, so the American, American Black Angus is something that's highly sought after simply because of the Texas-style barbecue that's being imported. It's the best fit. It's, I think, by far and away, it's, it's currently the best fit that we have for our processing. And are you seeing... Uh, are you seeing these guys in Europe, are they, are they slow smoking? Are they stick burning? Are they... You know, everyone doing is doing their best to stick burn. Really? Mm-hmm. Because they see that there's, there's nostalgia there. And there's skill there. People want to test themselves. <clears throat> you know, it's kind of funny. It seems that there's, I think one of the reasons that barbecue has a, an appeal that maybe other foods don't, and I've said it many times, is there seem, there's seemingly a spiritual element 
or a mystical element. Um, there's a mythos that follows barbecue. One thing that we we see in Western culture today is, is, as an often misphrased quote from Nietzsche, that God is dead. I think that's slowly and truly, be, you know, becoming more of a reality. And, and what it does is it creates a void. There, there is a void. Um, there's a system of, I think, a structural system that people are accustomed to that suddenly is not there and trying to put some mystery back into their life, the unexplained, the difficult to do, barbecue in some small way, I think, slides into that niche of the unknown. It, it is hard and it does take a dedication to do and you do become sort of a high priest when you, when you, I think, are on the upper ends, when you learn the techniques and understand fire. When you, uh, when you work the cathedral, that's like the, that's the official, that's the original, that's where it started, right? Yeah, our, our red apron pre high priests, yeah. Have you seen anyone? Mm. I mean, the, the draw on your smokers is, it's just wild. I mean, how, how tall is that stack going through the middle of the it's building? about 30 feet. Yeah. So... Have you even seen anyone mm. with a 30-foot stack? Have you ever seen anyone who's tried to copy or replicate what, go, what goes on here? There are many tall stacks in, in the inner cities. Oftentimes, they have to go up to the height of the building. Because of code or something? Because of code. Yeah, because they don't want a lot of smoke pouring into potentially residents in and around them, so they'll funnel it out. Sometimes those will go up hundreds of feet. So it's... Yeah, I see them up there, but they're also, those aren't straight drafts either. There's a lot of twists and turns in those conduits hmm. just to uh, vent out the smoke, which oftentimes you'll have to add some sort of mechanization to help that air flow along. Ours is based off of a simple chimney, a fireplace. And you look on the outside of any old home that has a fireplace, and you'll see our draft and our flue and our entire exhaust system looks exactly as um, a fireplace structure would look like from the outside of a home. It tapers up a couple of times, it causes bottlenecks which creates vacuums and airflow which really, I mean, you're, you want to make it as passive as possible yet as dynamic as possible. Physics, yeah. just simple physics. But, I mean, it wasn't a physicist who installed it originally. No, a cowboy physicist, you know. <laughs> you know, so much of that is, well, how much of that is brought forward by, say, the art of masonry, which in its time was also its, its own sort of secret religion and society. Masons for, God, millennia knew secrets of building that nobody else knew. And think about all the information. Think about all the information that was lost in, in collapses of culture and, and society. You saw Rome fall. It took a thousand years before people could understand how, how to re repair, much less rebuild, some of the things that were done 2,000 years ago. Things like that happened. But there are these niches of, of or these um, nodes of, of information gathering collecting 
um, and for posterity passing on. You know, as weird as it is, Dominican monks were, were a key, played a key role in Western society just from keeping so much of, of the known Western culture alive through the dark ages hmm. when universities were, were non-existent. When you had things um, such as Aristotle School or, or Plato School, uh, which were open universities for people to discuss ideas, these things had pretty much fallen by the wayside. Small groups of people, and Masons were one of those, had a collective knowledge that goes back thousands of years. That was brought forward. I mean, you don't see much of that today, at least not in the Masonry work because there's not many Masons. Now Now everybody's a steel fabricator, you know? Well, and I mean, speaking of discussions, you know, the last time I was here was with Joey Victorian and Ara from Harlem Road. And I mean, just the, the things that come up, the questions, it sounds like the four of us could probably talk about barbecue, how to cook it. And even though you have an established way, I mean, there, there's just so many different ideas and thoughts that go into it. Uh, you know, it almost seems like you can never stop learning. I think that's a true master. I, I honestly believe that. I think that the, the real masters in life, and not just in barbecue, are the people who, who believe that they are the eternal student, the people who are always learning, that realize that the extents of their knowledge and understanding by no means can encompass the total body of knowledge that's there or that will be discovered. I mean, when it comes to fire, there's not much that we're going to add to to our to the human being's understanding of fire that hasn't already been accomplished. I think we get fire. But what what we can add to the equation um, really is is engineering. The 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 equipment and therefore the processes used in those equipments are always they're in constant flux, and even though right now. The most popular, I think, style of, of cooker is, is a converted propane tank of varying sizes, 250 to 1,000 to gallons. I think over time that will change too. This is just the most current iteration. They've gone through so many different, uh, I think, uh, designs, um, uses, and evolutions that it's it's not going to stop with this. I think I still believe uh, you're going to find that places like JNR, who are using stick burners but are decreasing the footprint, um, allowing you to cook more in a smaller space. I think that how um, do they do that? Rotisserie. Uh. So they have an automatic rotisserie in, in a couple of their designs. It's an upright design. It allows for a sort of bathing in smoke rather than a convected air of smoke. It's a little bit different cook. It cooks more like an oven than it does a, a horizontal um, convection oven. But that's not a bad thing. It's just another way. I mean, what we're doing it was all a matter of, it was almost, we're driven by what is available to us, the resources, the knowledge, the um, materials, raw materials, all have dictated who we are and what we've, how we've sort of evolved. And that's, that's true everywhere. Urban barbecue is evolving differently than, than rural barbecue. And it always will. 
Because you have a, first you have a more diverse constituency. You have, generally speaking, the larger the city, the more complex people's palates. There's greater demands on barbecue in an inner city um, environment than there are in urban environment or in rural environments, because people demand more. They're accustomed to more, and they would like to see. Um, they'd like to see the care and expertise that goes into smoking the meats be applied not only to sides and other edibles, but to drinks, to aesthetic, to comfort. They would like to be catered to a lot more than say we can do here. You know, this is a cattle call and it's a hot one. You know, it's summertime and we've got so many people that uh, um, aren't accustomed to just standing in line, first of all. If you're yeah. traveling from God knows where, Californians don't like to stand in line. Um, Midwesterners don't really understand that. And so these are new concepts. You have to get, get them to understand that. Um, but barbecue itself, it's just, I'm coming to understand whether you're in a big city or you're in a small town, barbecue is still as individual as you are, no matter how much you might want to try to imitate something that you really enjoyed before. And you're trying to model and emulate those, those things that you hold in high esteem. It's still you. It's still your efforts. It's still your imprint. It's still your final product. It can never be somebody else's. And it's, it's just like cooking on two separate pieces of equipment, right? I mean, you, you understand what the end result you're trying to achieve are. Is it always possible to do it in one environment versus another environment versus another environment? This pit, a, a horizontal versus a vertical versus some hybrid versus some reverse flow. Are they all going to produce the same kind of results? They can all get close if you understand how to work the equipment, but, but they all leave a unique fingerprint in and of themselves, just like the individuals do. So um, barbecue is evolving, and it's, it's really becoming exactly what I thought it would be when I talked to Billy Durney. Um, you know, our early conversations were, you're going to go back, and you're going to do what you do. Maybe you'll do some of this, but really, if you're going to be successful, you're, you're going to incorporate your community into your, into your concept. The culture of barbecue comes with you. The concept of how that barbecue is presented is uniquely you and your environment. So I think the changes are just all going to be regionally um, unique. And I think 20 years from now, we're going to look back and say, you know, 35 years ago, 30 years ago, this, this germination of, new, of, of Nouveau barbecue um, created really a forward-thinking idea of cooking with fire that it's not going to be contained to just barbecue. It'll, it'll spread to other cuisines. And, you know, the influence will, will forever be reverberated around and around and around. And will anything ever be as popular as Texas barbecue? This is a phenomenon. I mean, it really is a phenomenon. Because and it's growing. That's the whole phenomenon. Of it. I mean, if it was a fad, it would have been gone 18 months, two years maybe. Yeah. The problem is, is fads 
rise, rise from nothing, or are some take on something that's old. This is lock, stock, and barrel being brought in as it was, but at a higher quality level than it ever was before. I'm just, I'm, you know, I can't believe that I'm a part of all of this. I can't believe that um, something that I swore off as a, as a child is now available um, to me and to so many others in a way that I really thought would be dead by now. And, I mean, not only has it not died, but there's, there's guys, uh, you know, who, who have scrubbers, so now they can cook barbecue in the middle of a city and they don't have to worry about the smoke. It, I guess it just ends up being steam at the end. I mean, that's a huge development. And I mean, I can't imagine the, ma the maintenance. I mean, it's already probably hard enough to maintain, keep your chimneys and everything clean, but just maintaining something that turns all the smoke to steam has got to be exhausting. It's just like any other filtration system, right? And, yeah. But you have a lot of soot. Yeah. You have a lot of particulates. Yeah. And there's a lot to remove, right? I mean, very true. I think um, it's, one, it's, it's one of the necessities that urban environments are requiring. The larger, the more restrictions that you have on, on exhausts. But clearly people find it to be worthwhile, a worthwhile investment. I know that you know the maintenance of, of a scrubber system can be s several multiples per year of the actual originating cost. So the maintenance and operations of a scrubber are expensive. Yet, even with that additional cost, people find that the cuisine is worth of, worthy of a higher price and are, are, willing, are willing to pay that and stand in line and do things that they wouldn't do for other cuisines. It's, it's what at least pushes me toward the idea that there, that what this, what barbecue, um, not only does it encompass something special, but it is touching on that mystical. It is sort of filling in some sort of way a void that society now has in its soul that used to be, used to be filled by, I think, maybe our religious institutions. And um, do you think... Do you feel like that's a a good transfer, or do you feel like you know people? Do you think the food's doing a good job, or do you think you know there there's a negative to people kind of walking away from religion and community and these things? You know, I think what religious institutions have done provide us a a sort of communal glue a glue that includes how we sort of treat each other, how we interact with each other, how we act in moral and, and ethical ways to each other. Um, society is going to have to find a way to fill that void. But I think the nostalgia of all of that, it's sort of an echo. Barbecue in a way, I think because it reaches so far back, provides an echo. And maybe that's the void that's being filled, that people see it and sense it, and it's familiar. And just like, in a sense, we're all children. And children, as much as they buck against structure, need it more than anything and really thrive in structured sort of environments. So maybe that's what we're, we're seeing and feeling when it comes to this, because there's, a, there's a, a very strong discipline that has to be enacted in order to fully participate in the process, to take it from, from 
delivered box to to sliced product on on a tray there's you know a day's worth of work and and preparation and cooking all involved in that one piece of meat um you don't just do that haphazardly not at a high level so i i think the discipline that it offers uh in some ways people realize it they understand it not everybody does but then again, not everybody feels the same sort of void. Or if they do, they, this doesn't necessarily fill it for them. But I think those who have experienced that um, recognize it here and are drawn to it because of that. I think that's one of the aspects, not the only one, but I, I, it plays a role. Well, and I think, uh, I mean, you're seeing, you know, di different, there's, pellet grills there's these stick burners that have kind of an automatic uh element they have a you know they can control the airflow uh people are finding ways to cook it still takes some discipline but not maybe quite as much as watching you know fire and really focusing on it for hours and hours and hours uh do you think those things take away or do you think those are just another style of the same thing well we're we're a society of convenience Well, you know, the farm-to-table, farm-to-market, ranch-to-table movement had so much to do with people wanting to know where their food comes from. And the craft that people then developed in trying to do it themselves, to, again, to have a better control of what am I consuming. Just as every other generation comes and goes... What's important to one generation isn't always what's important to the next generation or the next. So what drove a lot of this, um, I think, interest first in barbecue and this reignition of the flame, so to speak, is going to be different. And it is growing to be different now for people who are looking to enter than it was for people who were entering it 10, 15 years ago. And it's certainly different than people who were in it 50, 75, 100 years ago. Those, those aren't even the same at all. Um, is the discipline the same? Well, if it's easier, the discipline's by definition not the same. We are looking at, yes, we're a culture of ease. I think that our natural progression is to try to find things that would make it easier for us and still be able to enjoy the output. But I think the reason that this all reignited to begin with is ultimately going to be lost. I think that, I think currently that the reason people don't truly understand why barbecue exists to begin with, maybe tangentially, um, but they don't see it as this is an offshoot, at least in a meat market style, of, of a group of people who owned meat markets who were trying to find a way to preserve a profit. That was the core purpose and mission of why you were smoking meats to begin with. No other reason. It wasn't because you intended to be a restaurateur. No, it was, it was an adjunct function of a larger operational structure. Now, you have a whole group of artisans who are trying to create something. They're like artists. They're like sculptors. They're like painters. They are taking this canvas that's available to most anyone and trying to create something unique but special and f something that fits within a certain parameter of what is now acceptable as high-quality barbecue. They're, they're all trying to do this and create this. And 
that has nothing to do with preserving a profit from a meat market. Moving forward, I think you'll probably see barbecue becoming less and less of a culture and more and more of a concept because that's the evolution of business. That's just what happens. Not everybody who's in it today has the same understanding or drive um, that the people or generation before them. And remember, it's, it's a cloning exercise too. Every, every iteration of cloning, say if you take a plant and you're cloning a plant, each iteration will ultimately, it's a genetic, it's genetically identical to the plant before it, yet its fruit isn't always as, 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 as full. Um, it starts to lose something in that, that progeneration. It needs influx of, of new things. Um, I think that we're going to run our course. I think that what, what I do isn't always going to be popular. I don't think it's always going to be viable in, in all settings. I think that um, evolution is a natural, is a natural component of, of everything that we do. And it's unfortunate that as small towns sort of become wannabe big towns, in their own way, and Taylor's is, is no different. I mean, we have a revitalization here that's built on, it's now going away from an agrarian society to an entertainment one. That's a completely d different ideal and mission. I think society as a whole does the same sort of thing. Each generation of barbecue, um, what do you want to call them? I don't want to call them pitmasters. I, I, enthusiasts, professional enthusiasts, are, are going to do it for different reasons, and it, it loses its soul over, over time. And that's what I'm most, I think, sad about. I'm not fearful that it's going to happen, because I, I, it's already happening. But it's a sad component, because it, that means that the rationale for it all igniting is sort of burned out, and all that's left is this residual that people see as, as a way to make a living. Well, and I mean, it's true. It did start with people just trying to preserve their meat, people just trying to find a way to sell a product that they already had in a different way. And there are, you know, Billy Durney's keeping it real in, uh, in Brooklyn. There's guys on the West Coast that are, you know, buying smokers that were made here, offset smokers, and they're taking them up the coast. I mean, I, I don't think... I don't see its death anytime soon, uh, but do you feel like do you feel like the fact that it's spreading is hurting it? Do you feel like it's just? I think so because the the act of spreading itself is going to bring a whole different filtered ideal of what it is that you're bringing that you're importing. That's not to say the the desire to do this in in a very proper and authentic way is dead. I don't think that's the case at all. I think that people's motivations for doing it are, is, is ultimately what's changing. And how they're doing it is gonna change according to what their motivations are. The more true people want to stay to those classic old roots, the more you're gonna see um, adherence to, to older traditional methodologies and equipment. The more people are trying to, I think, create functional and, and, and profitable business concerns 
the more you're going to see labor reduced, equipment investment increased, and a quicker processing time. Because you never truly re recoup your investment in time. You can recoup it in, in um, product costs, supply costs. But time is, is, quite honestly, if you think about all the time that we put into this any given cut of meat, there's, my hourly rate on that is you know, in the pennies. It's not in the dollars or tens of dollars. And so that's not always incorporated into, into that cost. We do the best we can, but um, businesses realize that they have to make money in long term. In order to do that, they have to, they have to control that, that segment of it. But don't you think there is, it, it's still kind of beautiful that there are people lining up to, you know, young guys that want to cook, that want to uh, spend those hours that, that are willing to maybe not necessarily make as much money as they thought they would. But they're learning something. They're they're taking their time. They're 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 practicing in their cathedral. Uh, I, I think it's kind of I think it's great when you see someone who's 20 or 23 that wants to work 16-hour shifts and and really make a cut of meat the original way. Finding those people are, are more difficult. Right. Of but, course. But but I think that you're right. Um, you know, you look at horn barbecue moves out out on the west coast both those guys are doing some really great stuff um i've had an opportunity to speak to matt on a number of occasions and uh i really am impressed with what he's doing shout out to horn barbecue yeah exactly keep killing it matt i'm looking forward to come visiting you um You know, whenever you have a, 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 <clears throat> an orthodoxy, the originators of that orthodoxy oftentimes will take it for granted. It's the converts oftentimes that come in that, be, that f create the new zealot nature of, of that ideology, right? They become the staunch orthodox and create the new orthodoxy. What I'm hoping is, is that there's going to be enough of these people that literally come through the system that want to be rooted in that old tradition. That not only is it, is it imported across and exported across the world, but that there are pockets of people who really understand and believe in what this represents. And what, to me, it represents is there are traditional values of, of the hearth that are encapsulated in what we do. The hearth being really the true essence, not only of a home, but of a community. It's, it's what protected you, it's what kept you warm, it's what's kept you fed. It was the general communal place where ideas were shared, where plans were hatched, where um, communities, eventually towns, um, planned and grew, became city-states and nations, all because of fire. We're upright and, and I think we're homo sapien sapien in part because of our, our domestication of fire. It's that hearth. I mean, we, 
we can't seemingly separate ourselves from that. And the, I think that the more people who can understand, not, it's not just a ritual of fire, that there, there truly is, um, there's an esoteric meaning to what fire is to all of us. And it's sort of imprinted in our DNA. And those people who really tap into it and, and touch on it understand, understand something more than I think others do. And that is, we're all, the happiness in life is the fire within each of us. It's not gonna come from something outside. We have to create our own view of the world, our own happiness in our world, our own sense of um, accomplishment, our own sense of o overcoming difficult challenges. Barbecue provides all of these components in life and sort of these microcosms into our own growth and development, both as, as, as a species and as individuals, as, as a collective, um, as, a com as a community. Uh, it all centers around this this eternal flame. Some people grab a hold of that and understand that. Other people don't see that at all. They miss that. It's what concerns me about um, equipment that is gas-driven, or even Traegers for as much as they are wooden pellets that are being fed. You're Yes, you're, you're using a fire, but it's, it seems to be a, a sanitized sort of fire. It's not a, this untamed natural thing that, that emanates from the wood from the tree that just was felled. There's something different about it. Well, you're, you have a predictability, and, and we all know from stick burners sometimes it is unpredictable. Sometimes you put a piece of wood in there and the last three logs burned great and then this one's just giving you all kinds of trouble and you don't know, should I pull it out? Should I throw another one? You have to learn on the fly because whether you're doing it by feel or looking at a thermometer, you know where it's supposed to be and if it's not there, you better get it back there quick because that's what's keeping your meat right. Yeah, I mean, the hardest thing that we teach people to do here is become a human thermostat. And I think that that goes right to the point that you're talking about. Consistency, really, in, in a fuel source, in a temperature. This is where evolution has taken us in the equipment. And for, and for the recreational smoker, for the individual, I think something like this is fabulous. Because it does allow them, they don't have all of the time to put in that we do. And it's, I don't, I'm not asking them to do that. What I'm asking them to do is just participate. I don't care on what level. I don't care if it's a, ga a gas grill, or hibachi, or green egg, or you got some giant Moberg or something that you, you just purchased. It doesn't really matter. I just want people, all people to participate. I think that though that there are, in a commercial sense, not in a, necessarily in a competitive sense, because that's all about the product, it's at the end product itself. I think much of what we do is to preserve a tradition, a, an old tradition, that is as much tuned into the process as it is to the product. And I think therein is where I find personal growth, is in the process, is undergoing the process, is knowing why you're undergoing the process. I mean, I don't have apprentices, you know, um, 
boiling eggs or cooking eggs for 10 years before they can advance to, to the next stage. But there's something to be said. I mean, Japanese culture understands that, it is, that it's not just about the product. You can reach that product, that level of quality after, in a shorter period of time, but it's, there's a sort of Zen aspect of the process itself. And that's what I see for us. The, what we still try to encapsulate is that the meaning of the process and not just the product. And I don't know that everybody gets that. And I don't know that everybody has to get that. Well, I, I think we all, we all get it from our own way. I mean, there, there's the majority of people probably just have walked through your door and they get that through eating your food, through mm -hmm. smelling the smoke, through... Yep looking at the walls because they see that it took time. They see, you know, Jason in there just working. I mean, I've, I've talked to him. I don't think I've ever actually, like, had a chance to talk to him besides when he's, like, moving sausages, uh, you know, wrapping one thing, checking the fire. Uh, and, you know, that that's what always inspired me. I wanted to cook as good. You know, I was going to all kinds of barbecue places in Austin when I first moved here almost a decade ago. And just asking, how did you do, like, where did you come up with this? How did, what kind of smoker is this? It, growing up in the Northeast, I never saw any of that stuff. And so a everyone finds their connection their own way, but it almost feels like uh, there is, you know, there is more access, but the discipline is something you have to find. I mean, now we have a Japanese smokehouse in Austin that's, you know, a, a mixture of old old school and it might be old school Japanese. I haven't been there yet, but. Uh, I think that, you know, when, when you've had a hard day, you know, when you've had a long weekend, when when you're down, you know, you can go to this thing that's a staple. It's a it's the pulse. It's it's always at a, at a certain pace. It's like going to the ocean. You know, the tides aren't going to change. You've got uh, you've got barbecue. It's all it'll always be there. Well, you bring up a good point. Um, you grew up in the Northeast, you, you moved to Austin, you, you discover this, this barbecue tradition, which at, at the time that you discovered, it's in its infancy, really in its modern configuration in Austin. What caused you to want to, want to go beyond the casual consumer, someone who joy, enjoys barbecue, but is, it's an ancillary part of your life, not, not something that's takes more of a mainstay how did you go from that to this uh what, I, drew, what drew you i got i just got interested in cooking with fire uh i just loved the idea of you know just cooking a steak on some coals i got um it's not the barbecue bible but it's uh i can't remember i've told this story on the show so people know but you know i got this big barbecue book uh by steve ratchlin and uh, I learned that there's like an, a way to cook indirectly and I used the internet to research that and I, I did that for years and then I moved here and you know I, I bought a Weber and I was grilling and then I just I, I drove past the place and I was like that smells amazing and and pulled in and checked it out and uh, I just started getting interested in seeing oh these guys have like piles of logs how are they even like how are they cooking this and you know I'd seen as a kid, I'd seen, you know, when they take out, like, the big yoders and they'll just cook a million chickens, you know, at a big barbecue, at an event, at a public fair. And I'd had, you know, turkey legs or something that's been smoked. 
but I'd never really seen anything with like a true bark with something that that they spent all night cooking. And so when when I when I just kind of stumbled upon that, I started looking into it and I realized this is all over Texas in all these little spots. And then since then, it's I mean, I was trying to cook uh, a good brisket for years before I even thought of having a podcast. And I, I, I made friends with all these pitmasters because I just saw, you know, between going around Austin and then Yeti made that video about Tootsie. And so I ended up going out there and I just became a regular at Snows because I, you know, I'm I'm Jewish, and we're very old school, and there's a lot of orthodoxy in my family, and I think that we, I think I'm just drawn to it because I like discipline. I like the idea of having rules and the idea of really finding something in your roots. And if if barbecue is in Texas roots, I don't know what is. Yeah, right. I mean, it's it's as it's as much of a shaper of the culture as anything else that we've had here. Is spindle top, or you know, or or. King Ranch. I mean, it, you know, it's just one of those components. We, what do you think about when you think of Texas, you know? Barbecue. Right. Well, we had agriculture, but, you know, it seems like we've outlived it. Uh, I just found out that uh, where Snows is, it used to be a peanut town, and that's what the giant machine that's kind of rotting away next to Snows is a peanut sheller. Uh, you know, what happened to all that? Did that just, just disappear? I mean, I know California is still making all kinds of nuts and things, but... Where did all these things go? They just got outsourced to other countries, other states? Yeah, it's cheaper. You know, what is the cash crop? Farmers are no different than, than any other business. They're out to make money. And they're now they work in, in a worldwide competitive market. Sometimes they have to be subsidized. The government will pay them not to grow stuff. I mean, they're influenced more heavily by... by by government action than most of us really, really think. And it's, it is what it is. We're in, we're in a world now of agribusiness and no longer the small agrarian um, farming societies of these collectives, these co-ops that sort of come together to try to, try to um, be players in a market. Everything's in a big market now and margins are squeezed and you're competing against you know, Egyptian cotton or Indian cotton, cotton around here is, is, which was what built the community, which built many of the small towns around this area, hmm. is is no longer the cash crop. I mean, we've seen different iterations. The South has seen it too. I mean, all, you know, it, you go from sugar to tobacco. What once was all wheat is now all corn. What are the demands? What are the needs? Where, where are you going to get your greatest return um, with the least amount of risk. And I think farmers just assess things in the same way. But farmers are like, farmers are like barbecue people, really. How many people actually want to get up every morning before the sun's up to do a farmer's job? It's a thankless job. You worry, Mother Nature plays such a key role in what happens each and every year. And then you have to buy insurance to protect the crops in case there's some calamity, drought. Hail, tornadoes, God only knows what. Uh, it's a tough business. Um, and not, it's a tough, thankless job, really. Well, and now there's a bunch of talk about, you know, they're, they're, they're changing the way we can export meat, and the pork farmers are upset about that. Uh, you know, it seems like the, one of the only constants or, or the thing that's in demand is meat. 
but even that can change. Uh, as far as I've seen, though, I don't think anyone can make you know an, Ameri- meat like America can. We're sort of, I mean, we created a whole industry, a whole you know bovine industry around our tastes. They've done the same thing in Europe. They've done the same thing in Asia. They don't like a lot of fat. And for a long, the longest time, they didn't want much fat. And so they have all, most all of their herds and stocks are relatively lean beef. It's this whole process that we have here that has changed it. Beef has also been something, I mean, whether, whether it was the indigenous um, populations who were, were really consuming a lot of buffalo, um, or the transplant starting from Spain, bringing their cattle here, adapting them to the heat, mimicking the buffalo, creating a whole Midwestern beef culture from Texas straight up through the Midwest is nothing but beef. And feedlots, growing up out of all of these cornfields, it's cheap and easy easy way to fatten these animals up. I mean, our, our culture, our geography, our topography, our climate all play into the culture in which we, grew, which we created. It, it's, I mean, it's that way everywhere. If you live in an island, a small island, chances are you don't have a lot of beef, but you eat a whole lot of fish, right? Yeah, it's readily available. You're living, you're living in the frozen, frozen north. You're eating a lot of fat. You're eating a lot of seal. You're not eating. You're not eating snow cones, and you're and you're certainly not eating bananas. I mean, you know what I mean? It's, yeah. You're 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 utilizing the resources that are available to you, and you adapt as as a people, as a culture, as a society, to those resources. Um, it changes the way we look. It changes the way we see the world. It changes the way we live. All, all because of locale. Well, and at the same time, there's a, there's almost a migration because a lot of the Texas grass-fed beef isn't being eaten in Texas, but a lot of the beef from other places is being eaten in Texas. So it's almost like this, there's like a, like a current that you can, you can watch kind of some, the beef comes into Texas while other beef is going out of Texas. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really interesting to see that like it's, it's almost silly, but we're, you know, Texans aren't eating the beef that's made in Texas. It's, it's so strange. You know, I was in 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 my many visits to Texas A and M Meat Sciences. You you, I've had this discussion um, with a number of people there, asking them, you know, what is the relation between why is it that the further south you seem to go, um, the less marbling there seems to be in, in the cattle. The best explanation they can give me is twofold. One is temperature. The higher latitudes you go, the colder it becomes, the more fat is usually retained on animals, on mammals, for warmth. The further south you go, the color of, of hide plays a part in how hungry an animal will be. The darker the hide, the more heat is, is absorbed, the, less, the, the smaller the appetite of the animal. But straight up the Midwest, the further you move straight north, semi-northeast, you have more and more corn available, which is a very, it's a sweet, it's a sugar, it's a 
fattening uh, feed, uh, the more the, the greater the availability there, the fatter the cows are getting, which is why so many of the feedlots are up there. Um, you take these and in, in, now you marry this with, with ge a genetic component, um, the Angus, for, for example, and its variants. And what you find is, is cows do get fatter and more marbled as you move up these latitudes. Midwestern beef is, is sort of that prime spot, both in location and in uh, so food sourcing components to sort of breed these cattle that work great with what we're doing. I mean, it didn't start out that way, remember. I mean, we were just taking stuff out of the meat counter and just cooking it just to preserve a profit. Yeah, and it was from a local farm. Brisket comes out in mass form, at least in packaged production in the 50s, and butchers are, are starting to adopt um, prepackaged meats rather than breaking down carcasses themselves. Brisket is just one of these things. It's here, and it, it fits the needs of, of the bar our barbecue community as we're, as we're looking for what's going to take up the least amount of grill space but feed the most amount of people. Uh, Shoulder Claude fit that for a number of years, but brisket fits it very, very well. Um, I'm not sure where I was going with that. Um, but... But over time, we've moved, even in my lifetime, we've moved from a commodity select, which didn't have near the marbling, because it was still, you're looking for the lowest cost supply product, to today, the demands are so much greater for a high sense of marbling. It makes for a better product. It makes for a better Texas-style, beef-centric, slow-smoked barbecue product. Um, but that is continuing to grow. I've never seen the demand for something grow as quickly as the, the demand for brisket. It is this phenomenon when fast food, when other cuisines, Tex-Mex for, for one, begins to utilize brisket as, as a new meat component. When Arby's begins to use, change away from a single meat to a, to a quad meat, and brisket becomes a cornerstone of that. You you're now have made inroads straight into mainstream and you've just blown the demand right out of the water. It also, there's been entry into market that has just been unprecedented. And it's not like there's been a great exit from market at the same time. There was a high demand. And you know, after the, after the uh, droughts of five years ago, carrying you know, from Southwest to far West, I think you're seeing people investing in herds and in, in higher quality herds on this return trip because the demand for choice and prime is at an all-time high. People want those fattier marbled cattle, so they're, yeah, they're more prized. And there, now there is this, this pent-up demand as barbecue grows in, in Europe and Asia, there's this pent-up demand for that same beef that's not being generated in those uh, locales. They have to, this has to be imported currently. I don't know at some point in time if they will transplant herds, which would make the most sense, putting that supply there. But in the meantime, you know, America's trying to grow, as, and North America's trying to grow as much fatty beef as it can, and it's, it's, it's not keeping up. So where is, uh, I, I've seen all these different Wagyu's. Do you know where they come from? Or is that a, is that a whole different angle with the, I mean, the marbling on those is crazy. 
it's insane. We're, it's finding, I think, its greatest ally is in the competitive circuit. It provides, think about it. I mean, if you have all of this additional fat, you have a pool window that goes from maybe 15 minutes to maybe 45. It gives you a lot more, greater variance and um, fudge factor. It allows for you to, to produce a high quality product and not have to be as precise. It, it's sort of insurance. It's expensive. Jesus, it's, exp it's expensive. <laughs> and so it's not widely used in a, commercial, in a commercial way. I know Ronnie does it. I know a couple other people will do it in specials. Uh, they'll maybe do it one day a week, what have you. Um, but I think that in the price that's required um, to recoup your investment over prime, I don't really, I don't think that the return that you receive is, is minimal over, over what you're going to get from prime. And I think there's a very small market of people who are willing to pay that additional cost. There's a novelty aspect of it, and that people will will gravitate to because they want to try it just just so yeah, they, they say they the try name it. and they want to, and they'll find that it's fabulous. But are they willing to pay fifty percent more? I think by and large most people aren't, because we're all still watching every penny. Ask Walmart. I mean, you know, things like that develop because um, of our consumption patterns. Although I will say that this this generation, say the millennials, will use those. For, um, because I think they are, have been one of the big pushers into this, this food movement. Um, they're willing to pay more for experiences um, and for quality in, in product than generations before. So I, I think, that, yes, you're going to see more and more of these high-quality components of all things to a point and then you're going to see a retraction because the market is, is basically going to say, yes, the people who are interested in that are no longer interested or they're no longer alive or they're no longer viable um, as consumers for that. So you'll see a slide back and a settling. I mean, it's not always the number one, the, the highest quality product that is successful in the marketplace. Quite oftentimes, it's, it's the mid-tier because it reaches the masses because it fits both a quality and, and an economic component that they are willing to take that trade-off. It's an inverse relationship, generally speaking, quality and price. Um, there is an equilibrium that everybody has for every product, a range that they're willing to pay. Barbecue is no different. Older generations, say from this town, they were infuriated during the drought when literally prices doubled on brisket and they were just like I can't this is unbelievable I'm just you know it was heresy without truly thinking of the market pressures that are causing that um, but it does show that pricing um, plays a big a big role in how well people will will, um, will adapt uh, will adopt and support what you're doing we've we've seen a graduation luckily over time from select to choice to high choice to prime um, and usually that that's a graduated price increase over time too what we're, nobody's uh, was ready for is these shock price increases that truly haven't really abated even though they've come back some they're and still crazy do you think i mean 
do you think a lot of that was fear? Uh, because, I mean, those prices, I feel like they went up before the supply ran out. They went up before the droughts full effects really happened, right? That is true. Um, the, well, the, as the droughts were happening, you actually saw a decrease in price because people are, are eliminating their herds. They're thinning their herds because they can't import water. So you see this influx, the supply influx, which is driving prices down. And then you see shortage. At the same time that you're seeing more people coming to the market domestically, you're also seeing more people coming to the market internationally, both into the barbecue industry itself and into these ancillary industries that never used brisket before. So craft burgers are, are using are using brisket and chuck blends. You had Arby's taking up five percent of, of the brisket market. Wow, you have Tex Mex be it, Brisket tacos becoming a staple, you know, in every independent and chain of Tex-Mex in and around the city or around the state. So all of these new demands are suddenly just appear at the same time that, that supplies are, are in serious uh, jeopardy. It was just one of those perfect storms. And the demand for beef. I don't know if the, I can't, I remember growing up and we were, Taylor was certainly beef centric. I, my household was as, as well. Um, but beef is being demanded in a way today, internationally, that I, I don't know that I've, I've seen this. Um, and it's not slowing down anytime, anytime soon. Forecasts are showing that we're going to see steep, steep demands over the next at least five years. And who knows from there? Major metropolitan areas are they have their barbecue establishments that are popping up but think of how much of the of the country still hasn't hasn't really participated in that barbecue wave and it will reach them it reach it trickles down eventually to the smallest of communities it may take five years it may take 10 years however long that takes but it will get there it's still happening here austin is is a, a mature market for sure i don't even know how many barbecue establishments there are there now do you There's have any idea one today yeah, it's probably a new one today, exactly. And, there's, and people aren't necessarily leaving the market. So um, demand continues to grow. People are demanding it. This isn't just individuals saying, oh, I think I can do it. They're, they're opening up in some of these satellite locations in and around the fringes because it's the only place they can afford to open, yet they're still doing well. I, you know, you look at Ara, I mean, out in Richmond, how often does he sell out? Every day? It's amazing what he does there, right? And he's just sort of out there, out there. People find him. And it's a good addition to Richmond. We're going to keep this cycle going for some time. Well, and do you think it's to the point now where um, there was a joke, uh, you know, in some shows about how when all this cryptocurrency and blockchain it got so popular that there was a yogurt company that put the word blockchain on their yogurt uh, because it was just a search term. Do you feel like brisket is becoming one of those words that if you just put brisket on the menu, your your demand goes up, your you know you, you're making more money? No, because I think that there are enough people to understand now that there's such thing as good brisket and bad, bad brisket. Too often, t I think before, before the new millennia, I don't think that people understood that. I think people in Texas, 
Central Texas in particular, understood what good brisket was. I think the rest of the country understood brisket to be chopped beef. It was cooked that way. It was served that way. It was, it was edible, but it wasn't delectable. Now, there have been enough strong, high-quality barbecue establishments popping up in enough of the, of the largest metropolitan areas in and around the country. And it has become ubiquitous enough that people have actually finally had an experience between something that is low quality, mid quality, and high quality. And they now know the difference in a way that they never knew the difference before. So, but in all strata, there's always, there's, there's, there's a place in the quality pecking order for most products. It, again, it comes back to that economic quality trade-off. Um, I think we're fortunate in that this is the golden age of barbecue because barbecues, Texas style barbecue has never been better. It's, the quality has never been higher. And the gr select or the grades of, of meat have, have never been pushed to their limits the way they have now. It's just, it's, it's evolved, it's different. Um, I think for the better though. I think from that component, it is definitely for the better. It puts us in the best light. It's part of the reason I think that you, st you, hear, um, you hear comments coming from the Beard House that the only quintessential cuisine, uh, only quintessential American cuisine is barbecue in all of its forms because it, it does represent this country and the quality, it's peasant food that's been taken to a very high level. And now we're, the, the, all the ingredients that are being utilized in this are being seen from an executive chef level and not just a small town pit guys level. You see this higher quality evolution that's not gonna go away. That's better for everyone. And so speaking of evolution, uh, you know, we've created this show, we have our fans, we call them the meat men. Uh, and they could be someone working the pits right now at a big restaurant. They could be just a guy staring at a stick burner, uh, staring at a pellet grill, uh, just, you know, making sure everything's running good uh, or just listening to the show because they, they love to hear about it. Um, so we ask everyone, you know, what's your message to the, the enthusiasts out there, the people that love barbecue? Keep loving barbecue, you know. What you're doing is you're really holding on to an American tradition. Yes, our style is, is a truly authentic Texas tradition. Um, but I think Texas is just a microcosm of what the country is and, and, and was to begin with. So stay enthusiastic. Visit as many places as you can. Share the love with everyone you know. Keep, keep this part of our culture alive because it does sort of ground us in some discipline. It does sort of ground us in who we are. It does remind us that nothing in life is just given to us, that truly the things that are worth achieving have, um, have a cost. And that cost, I think, is your dedication and time and effort and detail and understanding. Um, carry on the flame, man. Keep the fire going. Indeed. All right, well, Wayne Miller, thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for keeping this place alive and uh, you know, smiling at everyone that walks through the door. You're, you're a, a true legend in the barbecue world. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah. I appreciate it, brother.
Y'all to see me eat now. Hit on the meat man. Y'all to see me eat now. I got jaws like a bear trap, a teeth like a razor. This has been a production of Glenn Cliff Media, recorded live in Austin, Texas.